Welcome to the next HR Futures podcast brought to you by CERCAL, the people behind Working Futures. My name is Kevin Green and I'm the chair of CERCAL's advisory board and your podcast host. Uh, these are supported by Kaplan, who partner with you to deliver your organizational development needs and enhance the performance of your people and your organization. With me today is Melanie Steele, um, a serial uh, HR interim director uh, and someone that I think many of uh, our listeners will know. Uh, she's done many, many uh, jobs in her time. And I think I first met you, Melanie, when you were at Boots, actually, which must have been three or four years ago. Yeah, at least three or four years ago. <laughs> Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment, what your current gig is, and um, a bit about the size of the organisation, just so we can put your current role in context? Yeah, of course. Um, so, as you said, I'm a career interim. I specialise in people change and transformation and got my own um, company, People Change Expertise. And my current uh, client, uh, client is the um, company called Arab. It is a global professional services firm. It's really interesting. It's employee owned. It's got circa 15,000 members worldwide. Just about half of those are in the region that I currently work in. And um, as I said, they're an interesting business. They work across the build environment to help solve the most complex problems, as they say, in a better way to shape a better future. And um, the types of um, experts we've got are planners, uh, consultants, designers. Actually, when you start to dig into it, some of the most world's leading experts in, in, uh, in, in design, etc. And, um, you know, I didn't really know the name Arab before, but I certainly um, got to understand some of the uh, projects that they've worked on or are working on. So HS2, everyone's heard of. Um, if you travel through uh, Birmingham Station, they have their hands in um, uh, working on that. If you live up in Scotland, you'll see the Queen's Ferry Crossing. If you're in London, you would have seen the Leadenhall Building. If you're in Dubai, you will travel through the Dubai Airport. Basically, if there's an iconic building, stadium, Arab has probably played um, some role. And they do a lot of work across the world with governments and uh, private clients. Okay. Um, and what are you... And what are you doing for them? What should I was just about to say, so that all sounds great. What buildings are my building? Obviously, um, not, not any of those. So um, I was asked to um, help them um, in the people change um, arena. Um, and so I currently work in uh, the uh, UK, India, Middle East and Africa region. We've just finished the first phase, which was about really repositioning the operations and partnering team. They hadn't done a lot of change um, in, in that space for a while. And they've only had HR for about 15 years. So in terms of their journey um, in HR, they're, they're currently on one. Um, and the second phase, what we're looking at now is the um, broader people function and uh, very excitingly hoping to explet, uh, exploit technology um, by um, having a new global people systems, fingers crossed. Ooh. So a bit of investment in their HR system, eh? It's always interesting. Absolutely. 
So we'll get, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that. So let's go right the way back to the beginning of your career, right? So one of the things I'm always interested in is how did people end up in HR? So I'm, I'm really interested, and there tends to be two types of people. A small percentage of people early at school or at university somehow, often through a family connection, uh, started to understand about HR. I thought that is the, the, the career for me. Other people sort of fall into it. And I'm always interested in just, you know, how people enter the, the profession. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about your journey to be a, a, an HR professional? Yeah, of course. Well, I like this segment as well when I, I like to hear how, how people uh, got into um, HR. So I fell into it. Um, it was, I left school. Um, I always had a really strong work ethic. So I had lots of jobs and did my studies. I wasn't very studious, but I knew how to get some qualifications. And, um, I got an admin assistant, uh, job, uh, for working for the Ministry of Defence, um, as a civil servant. And, um, I, I did various admin roles um, and I always did them to my best ability. And one of the things that my dad had always said to me was, um, after working years and years in factories, was you must join a trade union, which is quite ironic now with um, <laughs> some of the work I've done. So on day one, I signed up for the for, to be a member of the trade union. And to cut a long story short, one of the things that we started to discuss uh, after about, I've been there about six months, was the possibility of the site I was working at closing. And um, it turned out after I did a bit more research that we were, we were part of a sister organisation. So half of us was in Gloucestershire, the other half um, was in Andover. And um, as we started to have the union meetings, what became apparent was, you know, we had a second, third generation families working in this site. So it was really kind of the main employer within a 20 mile radius. And people, you know, back then didn't travel miles and miles to go to work. But the other site was based in Andover. So I kind of asked the question, well, why are we shutting and why are they not shutting the Andover site? Because surely it would be easier for those people in Andover being MOD, those that will know that Andover has a huge or did have a huge population of other uh, MOD establishments. And, um, and we didn't have anything else around us. And um, I thought, I think we should, we should try and get someone who's more senior in the trade union. And lo and behold, I managed to find a national um rep and he was only too delighted to um to come down and chat to us um and um I was talking to one of my friends and they said oh you should um talk to the local press because it's a really you know it's a local news story so again to cut a long story short there we were in front of the colonel of the site and um the personnel manager and uh, we were what I would call now, which obviously none of this, I didn't know any of this at the time, was putting our business case forward as to why we wanted to, to save the site and, and uh, how they could uh, maybe look at shutting the other site. And I can remember during the conversation, you know, that they, they'd said, well, you know, it's not that easy to redeploy people. And I said, oh, well, I found a contact who works in personnel and they said that they thought that there could be possible because in Tidworth Garrison and other sites, but they're recruiting. Yeah. 
So wouldn't it be better for, for that site to close and redeploy the people rather than second, third generation putting people out of work? Because it would be terrible. And at that point, they kind of went away and said, yeah, we're staying open. And I was like, this is brilliant. You know, we can all, I really wanted to work there. I loved it. And suddenly on the site, everyone would say, you know, here I am as an 18 year old on the site. And they'd be like, whoa, hi, how you doing? Thank you for helping us. And um, quite quickly after that, I got told to apply for a new job. And um, the colonel had decided that I probably would be better suited to um, work with them on the future plans. And I got my first job in what was called then um, civilian personnel management. Yeah. Fantastic. So you're an agitator and they spotted some talent. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's how I've made a career a little bit now, isn't it? So one of the things I suppose I'm, I want to go a little bit into your, your career in a moment, but I'm interested in why become a, an interim because you're very clear you are a serial interim director. So what was it? Because you've had quite a lot of big roles and we'll come to those in a moment. But what was the, the decision point? What was it that you thought, actually, I really like going in doing a gig for six months or potentially longer and then going off to do the the next one what was the driver for that yeah I never I never kind of started off by thinking this is what I wanted to do I I for the first time in 40 odd years I I got a chance to you know have a bit of time out like you do at some point in your career and I started thinking is this for me is this what I really want to do is this the future I think I'd got you know, this was on the back of doing the number 10 cabinet office gig. And then I went up in the city and did an insurance gig. And I kind of at that point, I think kind of went, oh, there's got to be more, more to life. And so I remember I used to go to the gym every single morning. And I, on my way, I think, well, maybe could I be a hairdresser? Could I be like exploring everything else? And to cut again a long story short, I got to a point where I thought, do you know what? I'm quite good at this, but maybe it's the way I do it. Maybe I need a bit more freedom to be able to be unlocked from the infrastructure of the organisation that I I work in. Because one of the things that always becomes quite a tension point over my career was the fact that I've always been very self-sufficient. So if I've done what I need to do, I'm quite happy to move on, find, you know, own my own career direction, which actually is what everybody wants people to do now. But back back in the day, that, that wasn't really what you did. And... And so I kind of tested out with quite a few people and half of them, my fellow HRDs, who you will know, many of them said, absolutely not. That is absolutely not the right thing for someone like you to do. You're on your way up on your career and you're suddenly going to bottle it was kind of how they, they said it. And then others said, I think it might just give you the freedom that you crave where you really just like going in, solving the issues and making things happen and leaving again. And, um, you know, I definitely, I've definitely found that now you are um, applauded for um, going in and pointing out potentially where things may not be working, really challenging the status quo. They love that. Being open and honest um, with any, without any access to grind and then stay in and help them solve those problems. And that seems like, uh, for a, an exchange of services, seems to work really well. 
Whereas maybe when I was a perm, you know, sometimes you'd be told, well, you know, you don't want to ruffle feathers by raising this. And I kind of was always very independent and very ethically driven. So is it you, you, you've lost the politics, you don't have to play that game, the, the, the organisational stuff and where you fit and how you do. As an interim, you feel it, you have the freedom to challenge and to question and to, you know, I mean, to dig, you, dig around and, and, and show, you know, hold the mirror. Yeah, I mean, look, when you work at this level, there's no such thing as I don't want to be involved in the politics, right? So, you know, when people say that to me, I'm like, well, you probably shouldn't be in business because there are politics wherever you go. And maybe that's because I have, you know, I've done capital P politics as well as small P politics. But, you know, that's just ingrained in an organisation. I think the difference is, you know, my future doesn't depend on on it. And I generally don't need anything from that organisation apart from I have a genuine desire to deliver them the best service that I can, which is not always what they ask for when I first go in, as you will know. Um, and, and with that comes like a building of a win-win, you know, you really feel like, of course you have to help them to influence, you know, senior teams, of course you can see how it plays out, but I guess you're a little bit more, you've got your one step removed and you're looking in. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about the differences of the jobs that you've had, because again, you know, I'm really interested, you know, cabinet office, boots opticians, Arup, Unilever, you know, very different organisations operating in different markets. So tell us a little bit about, I suppose, you know, the difference for HR in those organisations. Yeah, well, I say HR is HR. Okay, so the difference for me is context. So what is that organisation about? What's their commercial position? You know, are they doing really well? Are we investing? Are, Are we on the lookout to buy? Where are they in the market? Uh, who are they? Com- who are their competitors? Then the culture of the organisation. So how does things really get done? And of course, everyone wants to tell you how it works, but I have never been into an organisation yet that what the people say is how things get done is the reality. So I always find that quite interesting. And what's their future ambition? So, you know, typically, you know, you're there because they need to do something. It could be to shut it down. It could be to do mergers. It could be to grow. But for me, I stand quite firm that HR is HR. I think the only bit I would probably kind of just um, temper that with is, you know, private sector and central government are different. Um And, I mean, they speak different languages, (laughs) they do business differently, but I'm a massive firm believer that, you know, if we could have more kind of movement between the two, then the world of business would be be a better place. And the world of government would be better as well, wouldn't it? More private sector people, you know, getting things done. Yeah, but I also think, look, I'm quite strong on this, that, you know, some of the reasons I'm good at what I do and don't blink, like when we go through COVID or something, is because when you're sat in central government, you see a lot of stuff happen. And, you know, you're used to, um, I mean, you know, I had 11 business areas that uh, we provided HR services for in the Cabinet Office. And at any one time, three of them suddenly would be moving in a completely different direction. And I remember when someone has said, oh, House of Lords reform is, is no longer, people have been working on that for two years. And within five hours, we'd redeployed over 100 people onto 
other priorities that the government had um, decided were key. So I would also say it would be great for a lot of um, private sector folk to go and do a stint equally in. And I think they would both both areas would um, benefit. I think the most difficult bit is if you've never been in central government, you it's very hard to understand it. So, you know, when I used to go for other opportunities, they just used to think I sat around drinking tea, you know, civil service, that's an easy gig. I don't know if people would say that nowadays after some of the things we've been through recently. I was talking to someone yesterday as a chief exec of a, an agency very involved with COVID. And she said that it's been fascinating watching number 10, actually. You know, they've brought lots of capability from outside in. They've had all the scientific guys that are sort of ruling the roost. And she said, they, it, and also the, the politics and how it's played out has been absolutely fascinating. So, but she was, she was, I think, on the whole impressed at the speed that they're moving and the things they're trying to do. Not always successfully, but that's the way of the world when you're trying to do react to a crisis and move at pace. You know, it's not going to be perfect every day, is it? No. And I think, you know, the one thing I learned working in that world, I was exposed to some of the biggest brains that probably ever in such a small space I would ever be again. What comes with that is challenges as well. Emotional intelligence and stuff like that. You know, you you, you kind of sit... I remember I used to sit there and go, but isn't this just common sense? And I kind of realised I needed to stop using that expression because actually it's not common sense to everyone. No. So tell us a bit about, let's, as you've brought up COVID, tell us a bit about how Arup have dealt with that and how you've dropped into it. Because I think most organisations have gone through a, a rapid period of disruption. Even if you're in you know, a business that's still surviving, you're having to adapt to it if it's the working environment and people working from home and childcare and the whole gamut of what's been going on. So just tell us a little bit, I think, because I think people are just really interested in how other organisations have uh, responded. Yeah, I think we all are, haven't we? We've all been in in new territory. So um, we've all been really interested in in hearing how others are dealing with it. I mean, I've I've been I've been impressed with how Arab have responded to it. I'm sure many people have in the organisations they've been in. You know, they've they've got challenges at professional services firms, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, Kevin, you know, the pipeline initially softens. So you've got that initial um, issue globally. And of course, this is on the back back of Brexit too. So, you know, um, half, as I said, half of the region I work in, um, sorry, the region I work in is, is, is half the footprint of the global business. So we'd already had the Brexit and, and kind of come through that and they'd done well. And then lo and behold, straight away, you're then hit with uh, COVID. I guess we kind of um, could plan because we've got a business in China. So that obviously got hit first. So trying to understand, you know, get those learnings, what are they doing and then pass them on. Um, And as it was an independent business, you know, it's members owned. Um, The first thing we weren't all talking about was obviously shareholders and profit. So that brought, that brought a slightly different dynamic. So it was all about the long-term um, uh, part of the, you know, of the business. You know, what are we, how do we shore up against, you know, what might happen in the future? But I think the thing that is most impressive is that Arup obviously designed some of the best buildings, therefore offices. And so they have these most amazing offices in most major cities, like five-minute walk from the station. Yeah. 
And I would say probably, and I don't know what the exact number is, but I would say roughly 70% of the organisation work from offices and enjoyed working from the offices, enjoyed collaborative working across all the different areas. And it has a lot of energy. So, you know, even as um, an interim, I would be in the office two or three days a week with them. And I can remember sitting in a meeting, it's uh, really interesting, where we were talking about piloting more flexible working. And I said, I said just off the cuff, well, I think if this is anything to go by, what we're seeing on the news, we're just about to enter the biggest um, pilot ever known to anyone. And then practically, I think it was 10 days later, you know, they issued to, that all offices needed to um, close and people needed to work remotely, which is a massive undertaking, firstly, for people to get their heads around it. And because um, people just didn't work from home at all, a lot of people. Um, but what I was equally impressed with was the speed that the um, technology, global technology team responded and um, again, I don't know this, but I wonder whether they were sat there going, yes, at last we can prove the business case of what we can truly do. And we had a bumpy first week because they went from kind of, you know, a handful of users on the servers to suddenly like, you know, 90% of the organization within 20. Well, it felt like within 24, 48 hours, they moved us from Skype, put us across to Teams we had all these conferences and client meetings, etc. And they moved them across to um, Teams Live. And um, we got over the first week where people were worried because there was people walking behind their camera or, you know, we were looking at people's noses or what have you, where they hadn't quite got the camera positioned in the right way. And within a week, it we were just making some of the biggest decisions that would, you know, affect the company for the future on remotely and it doesn't it hasn't made any difference they are winning work through bidding this way and um look i know many companies have been doing this for a long time but you know as a company that hadn't hadn't done that on that kind of scale firstly i think it, it it's fantastic and secondly I am always in awe of an enabling function that can step up and and really show. So, you know, credit to the IT team who um, showed us what the future could be. So have, have you been, a? I mean, I suppose we all know about John, John Lewis has been employee-owned and one of my ex-chairmen at the REC has, uh, has created an employee-owned recruitment company, which is pretty unique. Do you just say... Do you want to say a little bit about employee-owned? Do you think that is potentially the, you know, a, a fantastic model for organisations to look at? I've never worked in one before. So, you know, it comes with challenges when you come in. So I would say change and transformation is something that, um, you know, if they've been successful today, you really have to sell why they need to change for tomorrow. Um, because they have that much more longevity, they have long service. So, um, you know, people typically go into Arab and they stay. Um, and um, some similarities, I'd say, a bit with the civil service, what that then brings with long, with long service. I mean, when you want to drive change, everyone's got a voice. Everyone has an opinion. 
So um, it, it becomes more challenging when you want to kind of go to that point person and because there isn't that point person, you know, you have a chair, etc. But you've got to really influence these these people yeah. that they want to get behind it. But isn't there some real strength in that? You know, we talk about culture and inclusivity and engagement and people owning and, and they get that side. I think you're right. They're, they're, perhaps the downside is speed of movement, a little bit conservative. But actually, some of the stuff that we spend in HR, spending a lot of time trying to convince businesses are, are valuable. They sort of get in spades, but they perhaps lose some of the dynamism on the other side. Yeah, I, I think it's been nice to see the other side of it because obviously my focus has been the chance and change and transformation side. So I've been, I've been in those uh, conversations trying to convince uh, why someone who you know who's come from outside um, as an expert is 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 helping them, you know, to drive the change, which I'm having to convince them they they might want because you've seen it in a different way where they haven't. You know, that's the downside of always being in one company of course is that you've, you've only seen it done one way um but how how they've got behind uh the COVID-19 how they start off you know Trudy is you know about the fact their family how are you doing are you well it's not just words it, it it very much is you know the relationship how they're connected it would be a fascinating case study, I think, when you look at that networking, you know, where the power lies, where decisions are made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. Um, let's move on. Let's talk a bit about you. So one of the questions I always ask on these podcasts is tell me about the thing you're proudest of, the moment in your career where you did something and you look back on it now and go, whatever it may be, maybe a great learning experience, some huge change you made to an organisation. But I think there's always a moment when you can reflect and go, you know, I learned a lot there. There's something I've done that I'm very proud of. What, what leaps to mind for you? Yeah, you know, because I always, again, this is a question I'm always fascinated to hear. What are they going to say? Um, and, I, and I always think in my head, what would I say, right? So then I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to get the question of it. And I'm going to be honest, right, when I, the first thing that come to mind, and you might say, oh, no, this doesn't cut it. But the first thing that come to mind is the ability to stay relevant. So by that, I mean, um, you know, I've been an HR generalist. I've done resourcing. I qualified and do program and project management. I then moved into change and transformation I've gone from private sector to public sector. I've gone from permanent to interim. Each one of those moves has have been with considerable pain. It hasn't been an easy stepping stone to kind of move through that. And then also try and say, think to yourself from a business proposition, you know, how can I still make money from this? Still need to pay my mortgage, but also how can I get that value that I feel I'm adding to a business, but that self-satisfaction? So it's been less for me about the aha moment because my ethos is I'm paid to deliver, so I will deliver. Um, But it's about being able to continuously do it at the same um, pace, in the same level of standard, Um, you know, rolling your sleeves up to do stuff personally, you know, I don't have a massive team where I delegate, so I get to kind of sit in that space and be the conductor of the orchestra. You know, I still I still need to to make it happen or use or influence the people around me. So 
I mean, I feel that for me is a massive achievement to still still be relevant, still be in the game uh, and still be working. <laughs> Fantastic. I like that. I mean, it's different because I think, you know, I think... And I always look on people's CVs and whenever I see a period of consultancy or self-employment, I, I am always positive. I always think that's a fantastic thing. And I always ask questions out because I think it shows adaptability to environments. I think you have to make things happen through using some of the things you've talked about. And, and I, I, you know, someone that's had a really natural, historical, progressive career in HR within organizations, I think struggle sometimes to bring about change and, and lead change because they've never had to do it in a way that a consultant does. So I think you've most probably got a, a fantastic CV and I'm sure you've made a difference in, in most, if not all the organisations you've worked with. But let's go the other way. So let's go the hindsight one. So you look back and you learn as much when things go wrong. I mean, I've learned, I've made some crackers. Another time, another place. But this is about you, uh, Melanie. So tell me a bit about where something's gone wrong, there's been a failure, it didn't work, and what you've taken from that. You know, you learn from these things not quite working or not going to plan or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, when you're involved with project stuff, right, you you have you have this panacea of how things are, are going to turn out. And um, there's always one part of that project that just kind of goes completely um kaput and and yeah you you put it back on the right side of it but at the moment when it goes wrong it isn't a good feeling and I think probably um when um I was in uh, Boots Opticians we you know it was a big thing for me it was my first gig kind of you know being a um being an interim um, we worked really hard to convince them to uh, change the way we were going to do uh, hiring um, and the global team weren't necessarily bought in to opticians taking a slightly different view and um, you know we we had the plan A, the plan B, the plan C, you name it we had it and then go live happens you know we've tested all over the weekend and that and it just didn't work. And, you know, when you're in that kind of retail business, you know, it's not a few roles that you're, <laughs> that suddenly are not being shown, you know. Uh, and, yeah, it, you know, the best laid plans, it just, it wasn't working. And I can, I could just feel the sweats kind of roll on and, you know, um, the business leader kind of saying, what are we going to do? And... At that point, I thought, run, but I'm in Nottingham. It's probably quite far. They'll find me at the train station because the trains aren't that quick. Um, and then we just had to go in, okay. I was like, right, I go downstairs to IT. I need to speak to them about how we do it manually. So literally, we went live. The system didn't work. And there was about 20 of us behind the scenes manually moving on through the different points that the technology was meant to take it all away. So that's what we did, you know, and everyone was like, oh, the, it, it, the go life went so well. It was great. It was so smooth. And I was like, I'm not sure whether that's good or bad because part of this is we've just invested in a system and what we've been doing is like doing it, you know, um, by hand. So what was the learning? What did you take away from that? You know, what was the, so what have you taken into other projects? That things will go wrong. 
So, you know, it's even with the best plan, I'm a planner, right? So to me, I guess, you know, in a lot of ways, I I think, well, no, if you've got a great plan, then things shouldn't go wrong. The reality is they do, even on your most uh, pinnacle moment, it's how you respond to it. So it's quite easy to flap at that point, And it's how, okay, let me take a step back. How do I save it? What what else? There's always something else you can do. So now when I'm in this situation, I go, let's not panic. The inside, I'm thinking, right, what are we doing? I don't want to make out that every project I'm in, there's always something that goes wrong. But the reality is when you work with technology, it probably it probably happens more than people know. Um, and then I also am very keen to kind of say, look, to everyone else, this won't be seen. So workarounds behind you know, behind the scenes, it will be seamless to the end user. And that's all we need to know. Um, That's all that people need to know. Okay. So we're going to take a break there. In the second part of this podcast, uh, come back and we'll be talking to Melanie a little bit about the future of HR. We're talking about its strengths, its weaknesses as a profession and what we need to do to, to make it better or even better. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit towards the end, a bit about Melanie the person and what she does outside of work. So uh, we'll be back in a minute. As the world comes to terms with the COVID-19 crisis, Circal want to help HR leaders look to the future. Will the crisis shift the world of work for good? What will this look like? And how should HR leaders help prepare their business? These are the questions that Kevin Green and the resident Circle experts will consider as part of the Shifting World of Work content series. Visit circal.co.uk to find out how you can get free access to Circle's up-to-the-minute news, research and opinion for you and your team today. Welcome back to the second part of this HR Futures podcast. With me is Melanie Steele, who's an interim HR director and change professional uh, and currently working at Arup. Uh, In the second half of this podcast, we're going to be talking a bit more about Melanie's views on HR uh, as a profession and what the future holds uh, for us, and then a little bit about her. So, Melanie, one of the things I'm really interested in is, and and you've been an HR director in in a few different organisations, is how do people, particularly perhaps young HR uh, practitioners, learn what to focus on what to put in the hr strategy and what to admit you know how do you prioritize how do you make choices about um what should what should we major on what should we focus on and what we shouldn't in the strategy or is them in their career in their strategy in their strategy well first of all i'd start off i mean i have a very strong view on this stuff so and and you know it's a broad church in in our profession as you know but i would always start with the business so, you know, you, a people strategy which is designed in a darker room with lots of HR folk is just um, a people project plan, as far as I'm concerned. So I think for me, it starts the other way. So the first thing I'd say is, right, park the, the strategy. What do we know that's going on in the business? What are the priorities? Let's not just dust off that lovely, glossy document that some companies produce. 
let's get out there and really speak to these leaders because I find when you're having a one-to-one conversation they're a lot more open a lot more real about what they see the challenges are and ultimately what we want to be able to do as a people function is enable the business to be successful so got to get underneath it so start off with the business and side of it look at the commercials so you know, you you can't be saying you're going to do loads of investing in, you know, nice, funky um, tech if actually when you look at the balance sheet, you know, we've only got enough, you've only got enough cash in the bank, you know, for the next three months or something. You know, you really you really have to tailor and that, that might mean that you're not going to be able to focus on the most sexiest of projects Um but actually, again, the people function should be there to enable the business of what it needs from it, which may be rolling up your sleeves, looking at how you're going to do a redundancy, how you're going to redeploy people. So I think you have to have some of that insight. I then look to scan what's going on outside. So what is the economy doing? What is what is happening out there? You know, I'm always really shocked at how many HR professionals don't look to see outside um i think we fall into two camps those that you know can't survive without having that injection of what's going on in the broader remit and those that have a complete aversion to it you know i typically find those extremes it's very there's not so much in between so understanding what's going on out there then I would say, what's happening in the profession, you know, and other professions. So, you know, like customer experience, stuff like that. You know, there's been some really great stuff that's happened. Been a boom, you know, that, that in that side of things. Um, and then go, okay, if we add all that up, what does that mean for the strategy? And then what does that mean for the plan? And play that back to the board. This is what I've heard. And this is what I'm suggesting, you know, as a professional, this is what others have done. This is what our competitors are doing. They always like that normally. Um, And, you know, what do we think? Are we bought in for this? And and anything in terms of that process that you think you, you know, lots of people miss out? Any stages where you think... I see lots of HR people not doing it. Is it that bit about going outside or is it the stuff about testing it, playing it back, not being too proud, recognising that actually it's an iterative process. You're unlikely to get it right first time. Yeah, I think I think sometimes they have a very clear view about what they want to do for the next 12 to 24 months. And they get a bit agitated sometimes when it doesn't quite line up. And I don't mean how to do it, because I do think it can be incredibly difficult with businesses that say, right, what I'm going to do is hire X. And you're like, whoa, whoa, let's not work out how we're going to do it. Let's first establish what it is we're trying to do. But I do see sometimes HR driving their own agenda because they've decided it might look good if they do this and this. And that's when it always goes wrong, because that's when we lose the trust of the, the, the leaders, isn't it? They're off doing performance management. Well, you know, we don't need a new performance management system or they're off doing some kind of, I don't know, new resourcing technology or something, you know, where we've got something that we're really interested in, but no one else really understands why we're doing it or the difference. It's- I always think uh, lift lobbies, um, coffee queues. So one of the things of advantages is, People never know really who I am in that first bit. You know, as you stay a bit longer, obviously, the word gets round. 
And so I will quite openly say, oh, morning, how are you, where do you work, blah, blah, blah. And somehow I try and find out. And what they say about HR is soul-destroying sometimes. <laughs> well, all they care about is X or Y. But, you know, that is part of the feedback, you know. And it's obviously you have to temper that because HR isn't there for, for every single individual, you know. But... You, you want them at least to kind of recognise, you know, well, they're helping us as a business to do X or Y. I think for me, that's the greatest kind of achievement you can get when yeah. you know you've had to battle that maybe in the boardroom because they've said, oh, no, that will never work. And then the next, you know, a few months later, you see one of the senior leaders or whoever who's been the, you know, the doubting Thomas, as I call him, talking about it like it's their idea. And I say to any team, that is absolute gold. And they go, but that's outrageous because they never thought it doesn't matter because what they've done is adopted it on behalf of the business and we are part of the business. Cool. Um, Tell us a bit about what you think HR's biggest failing is or the thing that we need to focus more on. You know, I mean, you're quite an advocate. You're out there quite a lot. Um, And and I think I think we're making progress. I think the profession's moved on. But I still think there's a there's a journey to be had and I'd be interested in your views. Well, I mean, I cannot believe we still have these blinking conversations about seats at the table and, and the obsession of titles. You know, I keep seeing people pop up where they've changed their title. So HRD seems to be out of favour and everyone wants to be a chief people officer, you know. And I, I just go, what does it matter what you're called? You know, delivery and execution is the biggest um, gift that you can ever have, you know, from a business. Uh, so I think I think we get self-obsessed, you know, and unlike other professions, we really, like, look at each other and we obsess about the profession sometimes. And, you know, again, Broadchurch, my thing is I'd rather be out there with the business making things happen. Equally, I do commit, as you know, to trying to enhance um, the pef- profession. I think the other thing is I... I would love um, HR to be more in, integrated into the business. I, I still feel it kind of sometimes feel like it's um, them and us. And um, some companies have really got that working well, but others you can still see that it's quite a separate um, team. And they talk about policies or they talk about the plan or the future. And it's not from the um, position of the end user. It's still very much driven from the profession rather than the other way. So I say start the other way. What is it that we want this individual to receive and then work out how how we do it? So, um, yeah, I agree. I think we've still still got more more work to be done. OK, let's let's move on and talk a little bit about covid i suppose so what do you think that's going to do for hr professionals in the next year you know what is what does this mean for the hr uh, profession or hr people in different businesses i mean some of them have been through you know the whole remote working thing the focus on getting that up being operational now getting the structure and the right right size in the business so they'll be doing restructures and all of that but also the stuff you know there's some real positives in this as well i mean there's lots of you know you've got to forget that you can't forget this is a health crisis and people have lost their lives but it is going to change organizations i think so i'd be interested in your take so what should the hr profession be taking from you know 
this experience? Well, I mean, obviously it's a serious topic, but just kind of putting, because it is a podcast, putting a slant on it. My first thoughts were, all those people who love doing operational HR are just rubbing their hands together where everything, you know, when we were doing furlough, cost reduction, it's the bread and butter, isn't it, of what many of us were brought up to do. And, you know, for a lot of years, we've been talking about people need to be more strategic, they need to be influencing more. And I thought, ah, this is the heyday that's coming back. You know, I could actually, you know, joining some of the calls that brilliant support, I think, you know, a lot of um, people like CIPD, CRF and and others, LACE and, and that have done these webinars. But... Yeah, my initial thing was the operational crew have come out and they're, they're going to be loving the initial part. And, and my goodness, that does prove to us, though, we still need it. So I think I think that is the thing, you know, where, where we keep having this um, conversation. Is it is it operational or is it strategic? We need the combination of both. Right. That's the reality of it. Um, I think going forward, there is no blueprint. So I think this is probably the first time in in my career where no one's done this before. Yes, we had recession, but there was also, you know, particular sectors that were probably more affected. It was, um, you know, particularly based more countrywide and what have you. So I think having to step into that unknown space is is what we desire you know we desire people to do which probably for people like you and I we love that so it's like wow we can we can we can fill the space you know and we have to get to grips of what is the economic position so you know the CBI have been tuning into the CBI um you know webinars listening to them in the evenings and that some brilliant information you know coming through that we need to be able to to take that and work through okay what does it mean for this business um and i think you know we have to become experts in scenario planning because again there's there's not going to be there's not going to be one size so at the moment you know actually maybe the business position in some sectors not in all but in some sectors isn't as bad as bad as what we anticipated and we need to do that modeling so again, these are kind of skills that we've been pushing for some time in, in HR that we need yeah. people to be more competent with. And on the on the other aspects of remote working, um, well-being, I think we need to um, not allow businesses to slip back. I do think there will be businesses that will crave to go back to what they yeah. consider is the norm. I think probably we'll get into a position where they they won't be able to do that because of the, how the lockdown will get released. But who knows? We'll know more about that. So, and I think the other thing is um, about leaders. So I do notice that leaders are like, right, we need to wait before we hire. We need to wait before we deal with this um, uh, performance issue. And I think we're going to have to help leaders to do some of these more tricky aspects, which many of them might try to lean away from um, in a more remote way. Um, And I think that's that's quite a challenge because, you know, let's be honest, in HR, we always talk about what we want to be doing in the future. I think you talk about this a lot, you know, is 
you know, you've got to kind of have those people skills in your leaders really to be able to move up the dial to, to do other things. Otherwise, you just get dragged back into supporting the business leaders or pushing them to do what they need to do. So I think it will change the way that people need to lead people to, which I think is not a bad thing. Yeah, I think I think there's I mean, I think I've talked to lots of HR directors during this period and, and some of them have been very honest and said, look, the thing that's become apparent is we've got lots of leaders and managers that just ain't up for the job. You know, what become quite stark is all of a sudden, you know, inspiring, communicating, engaging, taking people, dealing with human emotions, concerns, issues, bereavement, ill health, all of that. And some of them have just fallen apart and others have been brilliant and stepped into it. So. I think one of the things HR has clearly got to do is to go, how do we reconcile that? How do we help businesses deal with that? You know, deal either bring people up to a standard or accept that they haven't never going to be able to do that yeah. and find whether there's other roles for them. I think that's one. And the other bit I'm really interested in, and I chair time-wise now, so I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated about flexible working and remote working. And, you know, because I'm like you, I've been... I've been doing it for years and many organizations I know have always done it. And, but there's always been a battle. It's always felt like there's lots of, oh, we can't do that. I just think HR are going to be swamped with flexible work requests. And it's quite difficult to turn them down when you go, the whole business has been working this way for four months. So, But maybe, maybe I'm hoping that, look, I, I have a take on it. I don't think leaders, I mean, you always get the exceptions, but ultimately I don't think they got out of bed to say, no, you're not working remotely because, um, you know, I just don't want you to. I think they generally couldn't see how it could work. And then the whole presenteeism and all of that kicks in, right? I think what this hopefully has demonstrated is it can still happen. So I'm hoping that will reduce from the leader perspective that, that challenge and in the HR space we've all had those conversations with leaders to say okay let's just work through this why would you not say yes your the performance of the individual will increase you know all of these different and then afterwards you know when you really kind of try and hold their feet to the fire to trial it so you always put a trial in so that's their get out of jail card you know nine times out of ten the leader will say oh actually and then what's been really good in a couple of organizations I've been in is then that leader said maybe I should try it and this has just been a massive pilot hasn't it all as one so yeah I'm, I'm hoping it's less about brokering that need to do that and look the you know the office footprint's going to reduce too right so i think the two will go hand in hand i think the finance director might be happy to reduce yeah, yeah, yeah. some cost of that i do think though we need to think about how we support people properly to work from home because you know a lot of people are making do and and they can do that and they're not like you and i where we've got our own kind of area set up which we've invested to do due to the nature of our work you know they're on a kitchen table with everything going on but i think it wouldn't take a lot for us to invest in a little bit of um support stuff for them and, and again a bit like how we work i suspect most people want to blend don't they they don't want to be at home all the time and they don't want to be in the office all the time it's actually about working out what's right for the individual but i think it it should create freedom and an opportunity. And I think, you know, we've always talked about manage the output. Don't manage, you know, give people objectives, tell them what they need to achieve and then let them get on with it. So I think it, it plays to a lot of the things that uh, 
we, we should be talking about. One quick one before we sort of wind up um, and I get to the question about what you do outside of work, which is always one of my favourites. Um, tell me a bit about, you've got a non-exec uh, British retail uh, consortium and I know I know them quite well. I know chief exec because I sat on a few different things with her. So I just think they've just, it must be a bizarre time to be, representing retail on one side you've got you know food retailers having a huge boom and i know they're struggling with clothing and stuff but even so you know huge huge boom and how they dealt with that and then you know the high street just being decimated you know i just saw that jc crew have just gone into the states you know i mean i'm a i, I wear their chinos all the time i'm just i'm just not quite what's going to happen so you know uh, just tell me a bit about the role you're playing there and, and what you see happening in retail yeah i mean um so it it was my third non-exec um role i think you know hr folk or anyone can get a lot out of a non-exec role it gives you freedom it takes a little bit of fine-tuning because if you're a deliverer the the danger is you want to get stuck in and that's not why you're there so you you kind of you know eyes wide open fingers out a little bit might do a bit of prodding um and i was asked to join because they they wanted someone who who had an understanding of retail but wasn't only retail and they wanted to look at an offering um potentially that they could provide to retail um in the learning and development space so that that was really the 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 brief um that i went in with but yeah, I mean, look, before COVID happened, you know, retail was under enormous pressure. What's quite interesting, what the what the BRC do incredibly well is really lobby on behalf of um, the sector. And it's quite interesting, you know, some, some sectors get all of the airtime and... Uh, all of the time with ministers but retail continuously you know has to fight for that time and uh which is incredible thinking how many people work in retail in the country um but that's the truth and they are incredible for such a small organization about how they work and remember all the different ministers that have come on board you know it is a bit like a revolving door at times and getting to know new ministers to then influence. And then they've had, obviously, the new um, shadow cabinet that they've had to, you know, get to know and to get on board. Um, and they've gone from this position, you know, where where they were lobbying continuously. They've got such high resilience to me turning on the telly on the Saturday where Helen sat there standing there on the podium, you know, at the um, government press briefing talking about the work that the BRC did, which was, you know, bringing the different uh, food retailers together to talk about the issues of logistics and supply chains and, and, and facilitating with government that movement. And it's an incredible what I've seen them do. And then on the whilst that's going on, they're also fighting, you know, to to try and get support for uh, the retailers that uh, are are struggling to obviously survive uh, and try and get government to provide the funding to keep them um, afloat. And you know, again, retail as a sector, as you identify, is a is a massive broad church again, isn't it? So you've got your online retailers that are 
you know, I, the Amazon figures of how many products they were selling per thing is, in, you know, just makes your mind blow versus like you, the Oasis, the Caramelons, all <laughs> these great brands that I love and um, and, and love to um, support, you know, before our eyes, you know, um, folding. So, you know, I can't take um, any of the credit. The guys for such a small org have been phenomenal. They must be exhausted, the amount of briefings they are doing. And from an HR perspective, one of the things that I'm really impressed they do is they get the HR directors of all the different retailers that are together and they have been taking them step by step through things like furlough and that every day. And when you're in a retail HR, you know, it's usually pretty lean and you don't have a lot of ice places to go. So it's not just in that influencing space they've been working hard, but also um, in the in the uh, enabling function side too. So, yeah, incredible. I can't wait to see them virtually for a board meeting, you know, and uh, I think... Uh, you know, it's a it's a catch twenty two, isn't it? Because membership is is um, you know we is a challenge because if the company doesn't survive, you can't be a member. Yet when you look at what's been happening, there couldn't be a greater time when you want to belong to this kind of. Um... Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I was the I was chief executive, as you know, the REC during uh, the last um, recession. And it is interesting because your revenue's under pressure. You know, members drop off a bit and, you know, training dries up and some of the research isn't bought and qualifications go. Because, you know, naturally your members are focusing on other stuff. Um, but you're most in need. So you have to step into it. You have to provide more value, more data, do more influencing. And actually, I think what it does do in the long term is people recognize the value of professional bodies you know that that's one of the reasons why i was interested in it is you know you need professional bodies to raise standards but to talk on behalf of the industry to network share information and then you know they they're worth their weight in gold particularly in times of crisis and and, and recessions and things. yeah and i've i've been really pleased that i think people can see that because i think they're you know as you say when companies are renewing budgets they go well what are we paying x for yeah. Surely we can just get rid of that. Yeah. Yeah. What's the value proposition? I remember it very, very well. <laughs> um, so last question then. Tell us a bit about Melanie the person. So tell us about, you know, so you've, you're an interim HR, you take on big gigs, so you're very, very busy. Um, you've got your non-exec role. But what do you do outside of work? What is it? That, what is your passion apart from being a great HR professional? Is it literature, music? travel sport you know i'm sure there's stuff in there somewhere that that, that that lights your boat yeah i always hear brilliant answers in this and i'm like well, mine's a little bit more boring but anyway um honesty is the best policy so i love experience anything new so that's the theme really anything new i'm not very good at repeating stuff much to the um hatred of my husband in that sense because if we find somewhere good to go on holiday I don't really want to return I want to go somewhere else that's um different and, and better so going to new places on holiday spending quality time with the husband is my my number one which obviously in the current climate I've seen before my very eyes um all of those uh, those trips disappear but hopefully will will be able to be done in in the future 
Um, I love walking, so it's usually linked to a National Trust route. So love getting out into into nature, um, walking. Um, we've got a couple of friends that we call the we're a little group of NT uh, wanderers. So we often will meet up with them. Um, always ends with a good cuppa and a cake from a National Trust um, uh, coffee shop as a reward. We love that. Um, and then I guess exercise. I came to exercise kind of quite late in life. By that I mean I did it because it was always about weight and, you know, I never really enjoyed it. And then I kind of realised when I had the time in between work that exercise really helped with my uh, mental well-being if I went and exercised every morning I could then really think about what what the future was when I didn't exercise I felt a bit more am I really gonna move what am I gonna do and it's kind of taking a step back and going wow the common denominator here is is the exercise um and so I've kind of grabbed hold of that with dear life and um, it works. It feel, it really, for me personally, it's worked. Um, so I, I love doing spin classes um, in studios that look like nightclubs. So okay. Um, okay. they have this banging bass line music. They have the strobe lighting. It's all dark. And, and it makes me laugh because um, I go to a studio in Victoria and I'll be coming out at, say, I go early, so um, I like to get it done. So I'll be coming out at 8.30 in the morning. And it kind of reminds me back in the day when I used to love going to rave, <laughs> rave parties, that when I used to be coming out and I'd had a night out, it's kind of, I feel like, you know, the same kind of euphoria but what I've done now is been doing it in a health way so that that feels quite bizarre but I love doing that and what's been great by being in lockdown is I took the decision I've got to buy a spin bike because if I I thought at one point we wouldn't be allowed to do any exercise and I thought oh god my head will go bang if I can't and so I get on Instagram and it's been amazing across the world how people are doing these free classes so, so far, you know, I've been to Canada, America, Dubai, um, uh, Germany, doing these classes with other folk, you know, in the virtual world. And you think, wow, that, that I, it's one of the things I think I'll miss, you know, in the, in the future when we, re- when we return. So, love doing that. Um, and, you know, I love a good box set, watching something, you know, whatever that might be on, on Netflix. What's your, what, what's your best one recently then? What's your been your boss, best box? Um, I've just finished um, Homeland, you know, the last series of that. I like anything which is a bit kind of um, detective-ish, you know, if it's got a bit of government spy stuff in it as well, that's, that's kind of good. But uh, pretty much any box set. And then... Um, I like following F1 as well, but of course, oh, okay. that's been put on pause, you know, like um, most sporting activities. But I I really like the kind of performance part of it, you know, and, and following the stories of how they got to where they are, where many, you know, people think, well, you've got to F1, but you see the path to get there before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, really interesting about the lack of diversity 
in it, you know, of uh, how how do you start so far back with karting, you know, and, and getting women involved and wanting to do that and, um, you know, the cost of being involved, you know, it's uh, how, how do people afford to do that and um, and then on the day, just the pure adrenaline of watching and anything can happen. It's strange, doesn't it? I, I'm a big sports fan, but F1 just doesn't do it for me. Most sports, it just. I've been to, I've been to Silverstone. I've been taken a couple of times, and I, it just doesn't. It's just, I just, I'm not a car. I just don't. Cars don't do it for me. But anyhow, that's what's so great about life is different things for different folks. Um, Melanie, it has been a pleasure. Uh, I think it's been a great podcast. Thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, all the best with um, getting through lockdown and. Uh, getting back into the to the real world but today's been uh brilliant i think many people will enjoy the podcast thank you very much thanks kevin